Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Our guest is Pierce Salguero. He's coming on to discuss two of his books today, one printed and published this year, the other last. The first is called Buddhish. And it's a guide to the 20 most important Buddhist ideas for the curious and skeptical. The second is a global history of Buddhism and medicine. Now, Pierce is a transdisciplinary scholar of health humanities. He's fascinated by historical and contemporary intersections between Buddhism, medicine and cross-cultural exchange. He has a PhD in the history of medicine from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and he teaches Asian history, medicine, and religion at Penn State University's Abington College near Philadelphia. The major theme in his scholarship is discovering the role of Buddhism in the global transmission and local reception of knowledge about health, disease, and the body. After graduating in 1996, He lived in Asia for four years, more than two of those spent in Thailand, with extended stays in India, China and Indonesia. During that time, he trained as a practitioner of traditional Thai medicine. He also participated in extended stays at Buddhist meditation centers and monasteries in northeast Thailand and India, including a summer spent as an Anan... Oh, this is difficult. Ananagarika... Jeez, I'm going to leave that bastardized pronunciation right there. It translates as a white-robed monastic resident in a Thai forest tradition monastery. Neither Pierce nor I will be coming up with solutions to the world's big problems, but it is interesting to talk about this often neglected area of contemporary Buddhism and its global role and presence. The first half of the conversation explores Buddhist, the second the text on the global history of Buddhism and medicine. 
Both are interesting for different reasons, and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Pierce, let's mention the first book. Uh, what a strange name. Is it Buddhish? Is that the right way to pronounce it? <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's Buddhish. Buddhist. Kind of Buddhist. Kind of not, you know, kind of, but not really Buddhist. <laughs> okay. And I think that's, is that a coinage exactly? Or do you think someone else has been going around saying that term? I haven't heard other people say that term. I actually, um, I feel like I invented it uh, when I was asked on my Facebook profile what my religious views were. And I was like, oh, what are my religious views? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I said Buddhist. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of stuck in my mind um, since that time. I'm sure somebody else used it before me, though. I mean, I, I, who knows? Okay, fine. So this book came out last year, 2021, on Beacon Press. And it's a kind of introduction to the world of Buddhism and key ideas and topics that come up in it. Just before we get on to it, I guess I have to ask you this question since you've just said Buddhist and given a reason for it. Why aren't you a full-on Buddhist, 100% Buddhist, bona fide Buddhist? And why might it be important to state that you are not? Yeah. Um, so I discovered Buddhism in my late teens and 20s. And there was a time there uh, when I was living in Thailand and was uh, visiting monastic um, centers and meditation centers quite frequently. And uh, was, um, you know, at a certain point, I stayed um, in a monastery for several months um, as sort of a trial period to see if I would become a monk um, that I was interested in um, potentially going in that direction. And if you had asked me back then, I definitely would have said I was a Buddhist. And um, subsequently, I mean, it's kind of a long story, and I tell a little bit of it in the book, but subsequently, I um, came back to the US and went into graduate school and did graduate work in Buddhist studies. And very quickly found out that most of the ideas that I had been carrying around about what Buddhism was were actually these kind of uh, Orientalist fantasies that I had taken with me. Um, and uh, I started to learn more about the history and more about the um, kind of, uh, you know con contemporary ethnographic work on Buddhism and so forth. And and as I did, um, you know, I think I became much more interested in um, scholarly approaches to Buddhism than in practitioner approaches to Buddhism. Um, and I sort of gravitated away from practice and more towards uh, other kinds, more academic engagement with, with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And frankly, also like just learning, learning about the history and learning about, you know, a lot of the, um, maybe the, maybe the darker side of Buddhism, you could say in a certain respect, um, sort of also, I think my my um, appreciation for the tradition has always remained, but I became less and less uh, it became less and less important to me to affiliate as a you know as an identity uh, with Buddhism as an identity. Um, but yet, I, I still to this day um, really feel that I have you know learned so much from the tradition and been given so much. Uh, through my engagement with Buddhism, that it's not sort of a baby in the bathwater situation where I've just completely become a, you know, a complete critic of the tradition. So I, I think in the book and elsewhere, I describe myself as a, a scholar, author, a 
critic and a fan of Buddhism all at the same time. Mm. That's quite the quite the collection. <laughs> yeah, and so you asked me why is it important to establish mm. that um, from the get go, and I, I so the the title Buddhist is really. I think it's actually a description of what the book is about. Uh, but I do talk in the book about uh, my own ideas, my own sort of um, journey with Buddhism. Um, and one of the things I do think it, it, it was important for me to get across in the book was that this book wasn't a sort of, um, you know, a faithful Dharma book uh, written by somebody who's a card carrying Buddhist. Uh, but nor is it a completely critical takedown of Buddhism um, that's written by, you know, a complete um, uh, critic of the tradition. And so I, I wanted to get across that it's, you know, it's it's a, an attempt to convey Buddhism in a more uh, objective, you could say perhaps scholarly um, kind of way, but to do so in a lighthearted and very accessible um, kind of kind of language that uh, ordinary readers, you know, you don't need a PhD in order to under understand the book. Mm. Yeah, good. And that comes across, having read it, I think um, that's a pretty good description, certainly accessible to a general audience. Before I get to my next question, I'm kind of curious, really, and maybe you don't have an answer for this, maybe you do, but what would it take for you to return to becoming a practitioner? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I mean, so I do, I do have um, my own uh, set of practices that I do on a daily basis. Um, and I would say that those practices are um, maybe Buddhist adjacent, or perhaps they're Buddhist <laughs> in and of themselves. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've spent a lot, a lot of my life um, learning about Asian religions and, and, and living in Asia and experiencing um, a lot of different types of practices. And I've sort of developed my own, I guess, synthesis of those practices. Um, and uh, to me, Buddhism um, has a really important place in that overall um, tapestry or in that overall sort of spectrum of practices that, uh, that I practice, you know, the, the kind of perspectives that I've gained through Buddhism have an important uh, role to play in my life, but I wouldn't say that they uh, are, that I wouldn't say that I, I can't imagine a scenario where those become um, the, the totality of what, um, the totality of what I believe and what I practice. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know if that's, Kind of a wishy-washy answer, but you can you can press for more details if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I find that a pretty satisfactory answer. Um, but one question does come to mind here, which is that this book is quite different from many other books on the market, which are aimed at a general but intelligent audience. It is accessible, and I think certainly the the academic or the academically informed aspects of the text don't really come across as academic at all. I just wonder, who do you think it's really aimed at? I mean, why why should somebody interested in Buddhist or, you know, somebody who's uh, got a certain amount of sympathy for Buddhism and things like mindfulness, why should that person pick up your book instead of perhaps a best-selling book on mindfulness or, or something by the Dalai Lama? Yeah. Um, so 
I very much had in mind a couple of different audiences when I was writing it. And one of the audiences was exactly the reader that you're talking about. So somebody who's got a mindfulness practice, who's curious about Buddhism, um, and they, you know, they're encountering the plethora of books that are about Buddhism on the bookshelf. And there's sort of one end of the bookshelf where you have books by the Dalai Lama and Pima Chodron and, you know, Bhante Gunaratna and other people. Uh, and then you've got the other end of the bookshelf that has these sort of scholarly, you know, tomes, these, his, you know, very, very dry histories of, of uh, Buddhism in a particular time or place. And I was trying to write a book that was in between, in the middle of the spectrum, that would have an appreciation for Buddhism, that would describe some of the practices and why you and ideas and why you might find these of value in your life, but then also to present things um, in a more historically and um, academically contextualized way that aren't making sort of the broad kinds of claims that you would find in a Dharma book, um, and trying to you know be able to. Um, bring people along into the tradition of Buddhism, um, you know, to introduce them to the Buddhism writ large. Um, so the book has a lot of different materials on a lot of different times and places and contexts and ideas. Um, but then to, to sort of introduce people to those, um, to, to that world in a way that doesn't, necessarily require them to buy into the claims of the Buddhist tradition from the beginning and doesn't try to proselytize to them throughout the rest of the book. Right. Um, so definitely meditators with a, with a background in mindfulness were, was one audience. Um, I was also thinking about my own students. Um, so my own students are, you know, I teach at a college, teach undergraduate students in general education courses, which means they're not intending to specialize in religious studies or, you know, Asian studies. They just are taking this course for general interest. And, um, you know, I had a, a hard time with textbooks because academic textbooks often are very um, dry, very kind of uninteresting to read for undergraduate, for, you know, 19, 20 year olds or they're, mm. they're, that don't know anything about Buddhism. They can be really, um, they can really turn students off from wanting to learn more. Um, so I wanted, you know, a book that would be able to introduce Buddhism, um, you know, in, in that kind of objective scholarly fashion, but to do so through stories and through, um, sort of lighthearted, you know, exploration rather than the traditional scholarly introduction. Um, mm -hmm. so that, that's another big population, um, that I was thinking of. Um, and, and, and in the end, actually, I've received a lot of feedback from, uh, from Buddhists as well that, the, that they like the book and they, you know, were interested in using the book to, you know, a Western Buddhist who, um, might want to give the book to their parent in order to explain what it is that they're up to or what, you know, something like that. So, so, you know, people who, who are, um, who, who are knowledgeable about Buddhism, interested in Buddhism, who would like some means of explaining it to somebody else, um, have told me that the book works really well for that as well. Great. Good. Do you have a favorite chapter in the book at all? Ah, yeah. Um, well, one, one, one sort of, becomes uh yeah attached to each chapter as you're writing it sort of you know sort of like each <laughs> chapter is your favorite chapter while you're writing it um i guess i guess in the end um 
I mean, some of the stories I tell in certain places in the book are, are good stories that I get a lot of mileage out of. And so some of those might be, you know, a lot of people will ask about those stories. And so those are kind of good hooks. Um, you know, so there's a story about birds in cages early on in the book. And there's, uh, you know, a story about being bitten by mosquitoes in the rainforest in another chapter. And so those those are good sort of teaching materials, I think. Um, and there's, there's chapters in there that talk about my own journey and the sort of pivotal moments in my exploration of Buddhism, um, that have a lot of meaning to me personally as well. Um, yeah, I guess the, uh, there's also a chapter in there about health and, um, and healing. And, you know, as we're going to talk about later, that's my sort of academic specialty is Buddhism and health. So that, so that chapter is one that I sort of draw on for a lot of my classes um, so that, you know, kind of, I, I guess I'm not answering your question with a specific, um, chapter, but just saying that, you know, I, a lot of these chapters are good for different purposes and for different, uh, for, for different audiences. Mm -hmm. And is there a chapter that you would have liked to have added, but couldn't include because of space? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I, um, so the book is, I don't think we said this yet, that the book the subtitle of the book is the 20 most important Buddhist ideas for the curious and skeptical. And, um, the, the list of ideas was, uh, a process that took a while to come to because, you know, as I'm sure all of your listeners would agree, this, uh, tradition of Buddhism is so complex and so diverse and so very various from place to place and time to time. How could you, how could you possibly identify 20 things that are sort of, you know, the most important ideas to talk about? Um, so what I tried to do is to use 20 sort of, um, uh, broader ideas or, you know, concepts that lend themselves to a variety of different kinds of interpretation. And then in each chapter, try to unpack and explore each one of those chapters in a lot of different ways. So some doctrines, some scholarships, some stories, some personal reflections, um, you know, some explanation, just kind of like, you know, tendrils going off in different directions. So in the end, I wound up talking about pretty much everything I wanted to say is in there in some chapter or another. Um, you know, wh while I, w I was limited in the number of ideas that I could introduce, um, I didn't limit myself in the number of topics to talk about. So mm -hmm. each, 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 each idea just kind of unfolds into a whole, um, actually they're quite short though. It's only about six pages each chapter, but, but I do try to pack a lot of, um, information into those, into mm -hmm. those short pages it, those short chapters yeah yeah I, I can confirm that too so i like the fact as well that you managed to get a good balance between personal anecdote um talking in a, a relatively general way about the topic and then picking up on some of the academic insights that you referred to earlier because as you rightly said it's, it's difficult to find a text that bridges all of those uh terrains and does so in an accessible manner so i, I do think you filled a gap and uh now, that said, um, you know, there are 20 topics, so to speak. There are more woven through them. But if we stick with the number 20 for a moment, is there a topic in the book that you still find particularly puzzling or, or challenging that remains a kind of big open question for you? Huh, um, 
an open question as in something that I'm still sort of struggling to understand myself. Is that is that the meaning of the question? It could definitely be the meaning of the question, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I find that, you know, the study of Buddhism, whether it's academic or experiential, is just this constantly it's 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 constantly realizing how little you know so so that anytime you think you know um you know something about how buddhism approaches topic x uh you really only scratch the surface because there's you know dozens and dozens of different schools of buddhism and different approaches you know across uh you know 20 plus centuries across you know all of asia and now globally um so it, it's impossible to be comprehensive um in any discussion or treatment of buddhism and and you know as as you all know and i think most of your listeners know the um the the differences between Buddhism in say you know first century BC Sri Lanka and twelfth uh, century Cambodia and you know eighteenth century Japan and modern day Germany are are so um, the differences between them are so um, fundamental that those traditions really f for all intents and purposes in my view are essentially different religions altogether from one another um and that's the case you know throughout all of history and and that that you have these um radical differences between buddhist traditions from place to place and so i you know for me i guess all of the chapters are uh you know they're 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 places where I'm demonstrating what, I, what little I know about Buddhism and also suggesting all kinds of areas that are, um, you know, outside of my knowledge that remain to be explored. There's all kinds of topics that are, that don't make their way into the book and that, you know, that, that are, um, all kinds of perspectives that are missing from the book and, and that I just don't know about, uh, because it's impossible for one person to really sort of get a grasp on all of Buddhism. Um, so, so I would say, you know, I think I say, in the book too, that it's, it's an attempt to be, um, broad, but also knowing that it's impossible to be comprehensive. Yeah, agreed. Um, certainly discovering just how little, you know, is, is a fundamental step, I think, along any kind of path, but, uh, just to make it maybe a little bit more concrete, um, you know, my experience, my personal experience with Buddhism um, as a practitioner was in Thailand, um, the late 90s uh, to early, I guess, to 2001. Um, and then my PhD was in um, focused on medieval Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the contexts, you know, I know, I know Thai Buddhism in terms of practice. Um, I know Chinese Mahayana in terms of textual study. Um, and I, and I don't have any personal, um, engagement with Tibetan Buddhism, which is a huge, hmm. uh, gap in, in, you know, in my, in my personal engagement with Buddhism. Um, I know nothing, very little about Japanese Zen. So there's, you know, major traditions that are not, um, part of my personal experience, um, th that I've learned about through scholarship and through other, other means, uh, but are not, I wouldn't say I'm at all an expert in any of those 
in any of those areas. So, yeah. So just to make it concrete for the listeners where my personal expertise lies, um, I would say it's in, you know, contemporary Thai Theravada Buddhism and medieval Chinese Mahayana. Okay. Yeah, great. Thanks. Well, I want to move on to talking about your, your next book, but I have t- two last questions about Buddhish and bringing it back to you t- to some degree. Um, I think one area that's both, I don't know, from a certain perspective, it looks quite straightforward, but I actually, I sometimes find puzzling or challenging just in the implications of, of what it might mean to actually live a certain way, which is the Eightfold Path. And you talk about this in the book, and you also talk about it in terms of adulthood, which I quite liked. So I have a couple of questions for you, and I'll give you them both, and you can you can do with them what you like. The first one would be slightly personal, which would be, what do you actually think about the Eightfold Path as you are today in your life? And are there any aspects of it that are, are current in your life that you actually actively engage in in some way? And then you, like I said, you mentioned how some of the domains of the Eightfold Path only really open up when you are in adulthood. And that's a whole area of discussion of what it means to be a practitioner um, and the role of maturity or you know, transition from childhood to adolescence to adulthood and then maturity within each of those phases. How do those apply or not apply to certain kinds of practices and ideals within different religious paths? But let's, let's stick with the Eightfold Path. So let me repeat those questions. What do you make of it? And are there any aspects of it that are alive in your life? And could you say a little bit more about why this claim might be true, that some of the domains of it only really open up when you're in adulthood? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, these are thoughtful questions. So thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I guess the the place in the book where I introduce the Eightfold Noble Path is um, it's a chapter called Path. And um, I think the the primary idea that I was trying to get across, or I guess like the starting point that I was trying to get across in that chapter is that, um, you know, to really zoom out and think about uh, big picture, what is Buddhism saying? And I think Buddhism can be seen fundamentally as a um, step-by-step process of cultivation. Um, and it, it, it implies, uh, this is, uh, you know, again, I don't want to make claims about all forms of Buddhism, but I would say um, the majority of the, of the tradition of the Buddhist traditions that I know about um, describe sort of the purpose of one's life as being a, um, a, a process of growth and transformation that leads one from, um, you know, point A, which is an ordinary human being in the realm of suffering and delusion and so forth to this, um, uh, transcendent, uh, this transcendent state or, or, um, um, to this ultimate goal of human existence to transcend the worldly, transcend the suffering and become something, something different, become a, a, a new kind of, um, a new kind of being, a, diff- a fundamentally different kind of being. 
Um, and you know, the, the, the Eightfold Noble Path is the prescription that Buddhism follows to do that. Whereas there are other traditions that have a similar viewpoint that have other pathways that they would advocate that you follow. And people are probably familiar with the, you know, the very structurally similar, um, eightfold path of, um, Hatha yoga, for example, would be another, another case. Um, but I, I think more generally, these, you know, both Buddhism and Hatha Yoga are examples of the kind of, of the kind of model of religion of um, cultivation and and transcendence and transformation. And um, you know, I wanted to point out in in the book that there are other models of um, religious, the other religious models, other models of of spirituality. Um, that don't involve that kind of um, that kind of progressive path-like um, process, and um, so for me, I guess I guess you know I I can see um, both the value of a path-like progressive kind of model and also an alternative, which would say you know um, that would be more imminent and more focused on on fully embodying the the being that you already are rather than transforming your being into something else mm-hmm. um and so for me i think those two models have actually been in some some kind of you know tension or um maybe maybe in some kind of they've been intertwined together and i've been sort of you know um exploring both of those models throughout throughout my life mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons why buddhism you know isn't my primary or my only orientation um because i've also found a lot of value in other kinds of spiritualities mm-hmm. um so that was so so then when it comes to adulthood i guess um what i guess the maybe maybe the clearest example that i can think of that i'll share um has to do with the uh the 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 concept of anatta or non-self um and for me, actually, because I teach college students, I teach, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old, um, you know, young people, um, I, I have actually found the concept of non-self to be somewhat problematic for kids that age. And it's, it's a point I've made it sort of in passing in places, but I, I would really, you know, I would really like to hear your thoughts on that too. Um, so for me, the, a lot of the students that I see, uh, so just for some context, I, I teach in a, um, outside of Philadelphia, which is a major metropolitan area in the United States that, that especially recently has had a lot of, um, problems with racial, uh, racialized police violence and, and, uh, political, uh, turmoil. We're sort of like right at the, uh, edge where the, Republican and Democrat, you know, uh, lines of battle are drawn in the U.S. Um, uh, geographically, and and then also, you know, especially with um, the pandemic, there's been a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, a lot of ways that that young people, you know, were were not able to engage in the kinds of um, healthy socialization activities that, uh, you know, that, that, that probably you and I, Matthew, engaged in when we were teenagers, you know, hanging out, hanging out and shooting the shit with friends and, um, things like that, that they were unable to do during that time. Um, 
And, uh, you know, you add on top of that, the fact that the students, you know, like I said, uh, it, it, Philadelphia is a metropolitan area with a, a lot of um, socioeconomic diversity and linguistic and ethnic diversity as well. So I have this, this group of students, you know, who are not upper crusty white students who have, have all of these sources of trauma going on um, in their lives over the last several years. And they come into my class on Buddhism and, um, you know, we get to the, I, I use this book in my class and we get to the part of the book where we're going to start talking about anatta. And, um, I, I've come to, you know, I've come to feel that that teaching is actually far more detrimental to young people in the kind of situation that I was just describing. Um, who for a number of reasons, you know, have experienced a lot of trauma and, and aren't necessarily strong, that don't already have a necessarily a very strong sense of self and, mm -hmm. and don't have a lot of self-confidence and aren't really comfortable in their own skin and haven't really sort of like explored the world and really developed a, um, uh, a, a, a solid sense of who they are. Um, and this is just an example. So maybe I'm going on too long with it, but I'm just trying to paint a picture of why perhaps um, it really strongly engaging with the concept of anatta at, at, a, at a point in your life where you're not necessarily in a strong place um, might actually be quite destabilizing. It might actually be um, sending you absolutely the wrong messages. Um, and so, you know, that, that I think is an example of how certain teachings are more skillful at certain times in somebody's development and something that doesn't make a lot of sense to you in your twenties might actually come around and be very important in your fifties. Right. Um, mm -hmm. um, and it's not to say, I don't like a sort of like cookie cutter developmental model that, you know, everybody has to move through stage X, Y, and Z. Um, I, I usually, I usually, uh, feel uncomfortable about those sorts of models. Um, but I think there is a wisdom to there being, uh, a proper time and place for every teaching and that some of, sometimes it's not the right time. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i agree yeah there was um just to, to mention somebody who was an upper crust uh white privileged male at some point in his life uh ram das who was one of the first uh let's say spiritual teachers i came across when i was very very young he came out with this phrase which i, I quite liked i guess it sounds a bit trite but uh it, it, maybe it points partly to what you were talking about at least initially which is you, um, you have to become a somebody before you can become a nobody, <laughs> which is yeah. one of those 
cute yeah. phrases that he was very good at, you know, <laughs> putting together. But I think that resonates with the comment you've just made, and and I agree with you. I mean, it would be difficult not to. Plus, I don't know, Pierce. I mean, I don't know what it's like for you, but the I, I have the luxury of not teaching Buddhism in any way to large groups of people that I don't know extremely well. And it's funny, isn't it, with Buddhism, because so much of it, in a sense, is personal. I mean, so many academics that teach Buddhism are also Buddhists, which is always a bit of a, I don't want to call it a paradox, but it's a perplexity to me, because I wonder how you manage that without being biased to some degree by your views. But I think it's difficult to teach the ideas in Buddhism, just like it's difficult, I think, to teach the ideas in, in philosophy without some kind of impact being made on the students, negative or positive. So I think it can be quite challenging to broach these topics in a way that's constructive and may actually help the individual, not both, not only in their understanding of this new weird topic called Buddhism, but also in how they apply those ideas to themselves. But I think I agree with you. I think the, the, the notion of no self is not only problematic for people who lack confidence and may feel very insecure, but it's it's so open to misinterpretation. Or, or better, that's probably the wrong thing to say. It's so open to being understood in ways which are not skillful, to use another concept, which is quite popular in Buddhism of upaya. I'd be happy to talk to you about this more, but I don't know if we have the time to do that right now. I think the question of what it means to teach something like no self or emptiness skillfully is itself a huge, huge topic. I don't think you yeah. resolve that easily, right? No, I don't. I don't think you do. And I think you're also getting at sort of um, maybe a fundamental difference between the way that Buddhism is taught, you know, in Dharma centers versus in the university. And you know, in the in the in in a Dharma center, of course, these um, ideas are being taught as the truth, the way things actually are. Um, and in the, the typical university setting, you know, we're more focused on let's discuss the history of these ideas or, or where, um, you know, we could see where this idea comes from and how it's influenced other traditions or, you know, things, things like that. Um, and I, I think historically, traditionally, I, at least in my own education, I don't feel like professors were often um, very interested at all in the students engaging with the ideas in order to uh, transform their own lives. That 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 has been something that's been considered to be more of a you know the domain of the Dharma Dharma teaching um, and not really appropriate in the college setting. Um, I I feel differently though. I I feel that. Um, you know, it's, I, I feel very, um, I feel a responsibility to, yeah. uh, share with students, um, ideas and, and, and ways of thinking and ways of practicing that, 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 and, and to share them in ways that are, um, uh, potentially usable in their own lives. And so I, you know, I teach, um, courses on Asian medicine and Buddhism and, and, uh, related topics. And I very much, um, you know, within, within the boundaries of what's appropriate for a state university in the U S which is a decidedly secular space. Um, I do, um, really encourage students to try on these ideas, um, and to, and to, to play around with using them as tools to think about their own situations and their own lives. Um, and then I do teach secularized forms of, um, 
Asian religion, religious practices. So secularized forms of mindfulness, secularized mm-hmm. forms of yoga and Qigong and other kinds of things um, to, to have them try these on as well and see if some uh, forms of embodied practice might might be helpful in their lives too. Um, you know, doing this, in, like I said, entirely within the bounds of what's appropriate for the university, but but very much with the idea um, that, you know, these these practices have been and ideas have been transformative for me. And so to just present them in a completely historical and, 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 and non-personal way, I think is disingenuous. Um, and it's also, um, doing the students a disservice. Um, and I feel like, you know, given all of the situation and the traumas and the kinds of, um, situation that I was, that I was talking about earlier, um, I, I really think that a lot of these practices could be helpful. A lot of these ideas can be quite helpful. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I do um, introduce things with, with that in mind, hoping that students may um, see how they apply to their own lives and, 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 and play around with these ideas. On the other hand, I do that in this very Buddhist kind of way and not a Buddhist way, right? I'm very mm. concerned not to present any of these ideas as truth, as ultimate truth or the only truth or the, you know, I, I'll certainly describe that Buddhist thinks that, that this is the ultimate truth, but, but in our hands, this could be ideas that we try on, um, you know, practices that we play around with and let's see how, how they affect us. And let's see if this Uh is something that we would like to uh, have more of in our lives and, and see if they're helpful. And if not, then we, you know, just let them go. And so, um, yeah, so that's another reason for that, uh, sort of Buddhist approach in the, in the, to the text is to be able to use it in that kind of way in classrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think as well, um, whether you're teaching at university or, or teaching in various environments like I do, I think it's very difficult, and maybe this is true for you, it seems so based on what you've said so far, it's difficult to imagine that you could not teach the whole person. So playing around with dangerous ideas or strong ideas or powerful ideas or transformative ideas, the idea in itself that you could pedagogically somehow suspend the power or the transformative consequences of these ideas on your students would be I think quite naive and rather odd in this day and age, right? <laughs> I, I certainly think so. But I mean, that very much, I think, is what the professors I had in college and graduate school were, were doing. Um, I mean, those kinds of questions were embarrassing to ask and, and were, you know, strongly discouraged, um, uh, in, you know, in, in, in the seminar room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and people were... Um, no doubt practicing, no doubt professors were practicing, but they certainly wouldn't have mentioned that in public. Um, so I don't know. I, I think, I think maybe some of that is, um, perhaps starting, starting to change with younger generations of scholars now. Mm. Um, uh, but, but it is a slippery slope because to me, it's also quite easy to, um, it's quite easy. It would be quite easy to uh, turn a university course into, you know, a Dharma teaching seminar, which which it really, in my view, really should not be either. Um, so I think to me, the engagement with these ideas, um, you know, within the university should should not be privileging these ideas as true, you know, as to their truth value, um, but should be should be trying them on experimentally playing around with them. Um, in, in, in a way that's, that's 
more um, that that's not committed to these ideas as necessarily being factual, factually true. Sure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean that that that's implicit. I think at least for me it is. But uh, the other element as well is is just relational and contextual in the terms of. I mean, if you take an idea like no self and you place it in relationship to other ideas about what it means to exist as a self and so mm. forth, and then you, you kind of solve half the problem. But to me, at least, everybody benefits if we take a more, and again, excuse the trite word, but it's useful, a more holistic approach. And I mean, that's something um, we're seeing a little bit more now in some Dharma halls and centers. I'd like to see more of it, which is the introduction of slightly more critical approaches to some of the core ideas of Buddhism, whether those ideas are coming from uh, psychotherapy or Western philosophy or the sciences. But it is, it's a slippery slope for everybody. And I, and I guess it depends on how aware you are of your own particular inclinations and your own ideological investment in either the world of pedagogy or the world of Buddhism or secularism or whatever it is. But uh, I think you're fortunate if you're in a context where someone like yourself can actually teach in these creative ways, but also explore this tension, right? Because that yeah. makes probably teaching for you at least more stimulating. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm very lucky to be teaching, you know, where I am, which is, um, uh, we, we don't have departmental structure, a departmental structure. We have a divisional structure. So mm. everybody, all the faculty by, you know, because of that structure, um, are not constrained, are not necessarily constrained by um, departmental boundaries. And we are allowed to do sort of interesting and creative explore, exploratory kinds of uh, courses. And so like one example, um, you just mentioned, you know, how helpful it is to put non-self alongside other views of, of what it means to, to be you know, to be a being. Um, so I developed recently a course called the self in Asian, um, traditions. And so we compare mm. the view of Buddhist non-self against the, um, the Hindu ideas about, uh, Brahman against the Taoist, um, ideas of the, the, um, the Tao and, uh, um, also, indigenous, um, you might say shamanic traditions from Asia that talk about, um, spirit, spirit entities, um, and, and, you know, able to explore a lot of different views, um, on that one question. So, so putting, and, and, and then also put all of those in some conversation with modern day psycho psychology and, and neuroscience views of the self. Um, so I, I do find that those kinds of courses, um, are ones that students find really, I think, I think engaging, uh, but also for me are very, are very stimulating to be able to reach outside of one, one discipline and approach things, um, through this kind of multidisciplinary lens. Um, it's very, very much, uh, I guess very much a part of my own academic training has been this, this, um, you know, multidisciplinary training. And then, um, a lot of my, uh, research and work has also been multidisciplinary. And so I, you know, I, I really enjoy the opportunity to, to teach that way too. Great. Good. This is me, Matthew O'Connell and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right. It's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm. Is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder 
that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, If you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. Okay, well, look, let's, um, let's use our time wisely and move on to discussing the next book. Um, and this book really is uh, more academic. It's called A Global History of Buddhism and Medicine. And it, it appears, at least to me, to fill the role of a standard study text for the field. So how did you, how did you go about putting together such a, such a demanding work? <laughs> yeah, um, well, this is... Uh the result of many, many years, I would say 20 plus years of um, engagement with the topic of Buddhism and medicine or my shorthand Buddhist medicine. Um, And the book is, um, I mean, big picture in in the long term, it's a result of an engagement um, that started for me back when I was in my 20s living in Thailand and seeing 
uh, how, how closely interrelated Buddhism and healing were in, in that time and place. Um, and I came back to graduate school and was writing a master's thesis on Thai medicine. Um, and, and then during that time got exposed to, um, uh, some material on medieval China that seemed to me to be quite analogous to contemporary Thailand. And, uh, as I was digging more, uh, into that part of the world, I realized that the, the historical sources were much more abundant in China than they were in Thailand. Um, and so I switched gears and went into a PhD and, in, in, uh, focused on medieval Chinese Buddhism and medicine, uh, finished my PhD, got, you know, wrote my, my, my doctoral thesis became my first academic book, which was on medieval China. Um, but then shortly after that came out, actually a little bit before that came out in 2014, I started pivoting to this, um, more global topic. Uh, so it, these connections between Thailand and China were, were already, had already been rattling around in my mind. And I've been thinking about all of the questions of, um, um, uh, the historical circulation of these ideas around Asia and how, how ideas move from place to place and the role that Buddhism played, um, in those circulations. And, and I'd been thinking about that for, for a while at that point. Um, but when I started to dedicate myself to, uh, that research project, um, the first step was to, uh, reach out to colleagues and collect a large number of translations of sources. Um, and so eventually I published those in 2017 and 2020, this is a two volume anthology of Buddhism and medicine, which, um, collected from, I think about 85 or 86 contributors. There's something like almost a hundred chapters. Uh, each chapter has a different text from around the world, different time and place that relates to Buddhism and medicine. Um, and throughout that time I was collecting these texts, but also reading all of the scholarship that, that my colleagues were writing and that had been written in the past. Um, and so this book, the global history of Buddhism and medicine, you know, it's a single author book. It's my own, um, summary of all of that material. Um, but really it's, it's the product of, you know, uh, the, almost a decade of collaboration with a lot of scholars, um, through the comp through the compilation of the, um, anthologies and conferences and other kinds of interactions that I've had with them really trying to tie together all of the scholarship that has been done on Buddhism and medicine and weave it all together into a sort of a, a, a single story that can be told in 200 pages. Wow. Massive, massive job. And that, that was published this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was earlier this year. So is it a text strictly for academics or could it be accessible for your general intelligent, informed reader? It's definitely a higher bar than Buddhish. Um, but the intention with this book was that it would be, um, it would be usable, you know, in the, in the undergraduate classroom. Uh, it really is an upper level undergraduate uh, reading level or a, a graduate student reading level. Um, so it could also be, it could give any scholar who's working in any field an introduction, an overview of this topic. Um, but then it's also intended to be readable by, um, like you said, a, an educated general public. So I would think anybody interested in, um, you know, the, the therapeutic applications of 
meditation or who's interested in sort of, you know, the history of Buddhism or, or history of Asian medicine, um, you know, would, and certainly anybody who's listening to your podcast, cause I know you have a, uh, um, you know, a certain level of, of discourse on this podcast that I think, um, that, that, that certainly anybody who listens to this podcast would, would be comfortable with reading, um, this book. And, um, I, part of uh, my negotiation with the press, I got them to release the book simultaneously in paperback, um, which is unusual for an academic book. We always publish in hardcover for libraries to purchase and they're priced, you know, $140 or whatever the equivalent is in other currencies. Uh, And, you know, these are really out of reach for ordinary readers. But in this case, the, the, paperback was published simultaneously. It's, I think it's $30 in the U S. So, um, you know, the intention being that it might uh, circulate, that it, that it could circulate among ordinary readers and among students and among, um, you know, more, much more widely than a typical academic, uh, work would, would circulate. Okay, great. So I do have a question for you about this topic because I, uh, you know, I confess to not knowing a huge amount, uh, about Buddhist medicine. How do you navigate a respect and interest in, in Buddhist medicine and your existence as a modern Westerner and academic who, who is obviously, to some degree at least, uh, steeped in the Western intellectual tradition with its rationalism, skepticism, and so on? Yeah, um, so I guess I, I guess I should say that the way that I use the term Buddhist medicine is um, um, you know, is, is particular and, uh, you know, I, I have gotten a little bit of pushback from other scholars who, who, who feel like using that term in a different way. Um, but for me, um, when I, when I have been both in this book and also in the larger project, when I've been exploring what I'm calling Buddhist medicine, um, I'm talking about, um, the, the sum total of all of the different ways that Buddhism has intersected with medicine. And so I'm not referring to any one specific tradition or body of knowledge. Um, so Buddhist medicine for me includes the kinds of medical ideas that you might find in the Pali Canon, but it also includes something like Tibetan medicine, so Rigpa, which is a tradition, um, of it's a, it's a traditional medicine form that originated in the Himalayan region that is attributed to the medicine Buddha as the founder. Um, Buddhist medicine would also refer to the kinds of informal practices that are done by Japanese lay women in order to, um, help each other through childbirthing and, and, and raising children. Um, Buddhist medicine would also include, um, a surgeon, in a biomedical hospital doing a knee replacement in the US, let's say, um, but they are doing that surgery. Um, they see that surgery as part of their um, practice as a bodhisattva, that they've dedicated themselves to this, um, this in this life to being a surgeon because they feel that that's a fulfillment of their vows to help sentient beings relieve suffering. And um, so, so all of those examples for me would be examples of Buddhist medicine because of the uh, text, because they're carried, because it's medical knowledge carried in Buddhist texts, or it's medical knowledge that's attributed to Buddhist um, origins, or 
it's medical knowledge that takes place within Buddhist institutions or medical knowledge that is being employed um, in the per, in the in the forwarding of some kind of Buddhist purpose. Um, so so that definition being broad like that allows me to um, look at what is uh, a very messy and large um, very intertwined and entangled um, collection of practices and ideas and to trace them as they develop from the ancient period through to today, um, looking at how uh, Buddhism has played a role in the, the, um, in, in, in the development of these ideas and the, in the exchange of these ideas across cultures um, without sort of having to um, limit the focus to one particular sort of stream or another. Yeah, it was an interesting answer. I still think there's something more to ask about what you make of it all as a Western, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because yeah. there's, an, there's another aspect there too, which is that, I mean, obviously this is a topic you've invested a lot of your time into looking at, thinking about and studying. But um, Buddhism in many ways has prioritized the mind over the body, which is, is an interesting one. And maybe you'll, you'll, you'll say that's not true, which is fine, of course. But I've often thought that if Buddhism has as its central concern suffering, at some point, the body, <laughs> the body has to be involved a little bit more beyond the recognition that we get old. There's pain, and you die. So maybe I can pose that as two slightly different questions, and you, you can run with it in any way you see fit. Firstly, what do you again? What do you make of what I've just said? So do you think that is that generally true? Um, has there tended to be a kind of disregard for the physical body and for for health? When you're talking about Buddhist medicine, then does it tend to prioritize interventions into the mind of the practitioner or some kind of local uh, pre-Buddhist tradition that might be shamanic? Um, what do you make of that as, as you know, somebody who's inherited the Western intellectual tradition that might view that with a very strong degree of rationalism and skepticism? Yeah, um, great. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that so what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say is predicated on my uh, my own position within the very very large universe of Buddhist literature and ideas and so forth. And I th- I think w- what impression you have of the, of what Buddhism is focused on really depends on where you're standing within that within those um, those currents. And so if you're primarily familiar with Buddhist philosophy, I can completely see how you would say that this is a very mind focused um, uh, tradition where the body is sidelined. Um, but if you're sitting in the sort of popular everyday, practice of Buddhism and um, the things that most people are actually doing, um, most Buddhist people are actually doing, then the body and healing are absolutely central. And um, my my argument um, in the book is actually that uh, healing is, is one of the most central activities um, and focal points of Buddhism, and that that's particularly true when Buddhism is moving across cultures. So it's not necessarily the you know philosophical positions that make Buddhism attractive in a new 
um, it, it, when being proselytized in a new country or a new culture, um, it often is the healing claims that are being made um, and the kinds of rituals and other sorts of practices that involve um, health and healing that that are the the primary means of proselytizing and and the and the reason why Buddhism becomes popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so that argument is, you know, I think is as true for medieval China, which is what I spent a lot of time in my dissertation working on, um, as it is for the modern West. And I would say my opinion is that the vast majority of people today that are exposed to Buddhism in the West are um, being exposed not because they're interested in you know ideas like anatta and uh, and you know interdependence or, or or karma, but but because they're interested in stress reduction oh. and the practice of mindfulness um, and the health benefits that it might be they may be able to accrue from that. So I think you know the story of the spread of you know mindfulness to the West is is another example of healing being the leading edge of Buddhism. Um, so. But but I'm not a philosopher, and I don't I don't you know I don't spend my time steeping myself in Buddhist uh, philosophical texts, and I may have a completely different idea mm-hmm. um, if I did. So from 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 my perspective, you know, really focused on kind of popular practice and and um, you know uh, the 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 focus particularly on healing. Um, you know the what I see looking back across Buddhist traditions is that there there are some places where um, you could say being stoic and equanimous in the face of the suffering of illness has been a priority. So, um, you know, this certainly seems to be the case when you look at Pali texts um, that they're, you know, in that particular body of scripture, um, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, forbearance and, and, and patience and, um, you know, detachment in the face of, in the face of illness. Um, and it, and a lot less on, um, specific interventions. Uh, but if you look at the Vinaya, the Pali Vinaya, the disciplinary text for the monastic community, um, there are a a long list of, uh, medical interventions that are approved by the Buddha for practice within the monastic community. Um, so, you know, even within that one set of scriptures, you have sort of, you know, it depends on where you're looking. You could feel, you you could feel like Buddhism is very stoic or you could feel like Buddhism is very engaged in healing. Um, in general, in the book, what I'm, what I trace out, I trace out a trajectory from the Pali texts through, from the early Buddhist texts through Mahayana to, to Tantra, Tantric Buddhism. And I'm showing, and this is the argument of the first half of the book, I'm showing how uh, healing becomes more and more central to Buddhism as it develops. Um, so that early in Buddhism, you do have this sort of tension um, where healing activities are seen as being worldly activities that should not be really um, undertaken by the Sangha. This certainly shouldn't do, be involved in healing for um, as a livelihood or in order to be receiving favors from the laity. Um, that you know they might practice medicine or nursing amongst themselves if somebody's sick, but it's really uh, really something for physicians to to do instead. And there's this kind of real separation between the social c- categories of physician and monastic. Um, you move into Mahayana and healing activities become 
sanctioned and encouraged for monastics so that, um, you know, a monastic who's a Mahayana Bodhisattva um, is expected to, and in in China anyway, was actually um, required to uh, offer healing services um, and it, to, to anybody who they encountered who was sick. And um, the the ideal bodhisattva was one who was learned in the what they call the five sciences, which includes um, medicine. And this was considered to be very uh, karmically meritorious to be um, able to help people in that way. Um, and then, as you then move into the tantric uh, layer of Buddhism, um, healing in those traditions became very much integrated into the practice, into tantric practice. So the very same tantric practices that are um, supposed to be producing an enlightened being will also cure all kinds of ailments and also produce, you know, a stronger body and will also in, in, improve your longevity. Um, and these sorts of siddhis that develop, these kind of powers that develop as you become more spiritually adept, um, often have to do with uh, healing illness and being impervious to, to illness. Um, and so it, it, it comes that by, you know, the time you get to this tantric, um, uh, layer of Buddhism that he, health and healing are just completely interwoven into um, Buddhist practice and uh, are inseparable from Buddhist practice. Um, and so, so anyway, I, I'm sort of, sort of um, summarizing, you know, the first half of the book there, just to say <laughs> that um, Buddhism is, I think, you know, really depends on where you are. It really depends on what literature you're looking at. Um, but overall, big picture healing becomes more and more central over time. Mm -hmm. um, to, to, and and um, yeah, maybe I'll pause there and I, I, I'll take your second question next. What do I make of it all? But but I'll pause there and see if you have any um, response or follow up or anything. I have two responses. Uh, they're both short. The first one is that was actually very helpful. So I'm glad I asked you that question because it's really given a very a solid overview of the way you've approached this topic. And I think that's going to make it far more accessible as a project and interesting to listeners who may have a curiosity about the topic. So, so thank you for that. That, that was great. Um, the second one is you actually made me think of uh, Wim Hof <laughs> as you were talking about uh, Mahayana Buddhism and, and cities, because, you know, to all accounts and purposes, I mean, he engages in uh, Mahayana and Tantric practices, which he's kind of westernized in a way that's not so far from something like mindfulness. Um, and he claims, of course, to never get uh, colds or the flu or sick and has a bunch of world records to to prove so. And so maybe there's something in it. Yeah, maybe there's something in it, despite the <laughs> <laughs> skepticism that I might bring to this, even though it's, I'm very open-minded at the same time. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if you want to respond to that either, but otherwise feel free to go ahead and uh, respond to the second part of the question. Well, yeah, I, I, just one, one thing that maybe I should say, um, you know, with regard to the, the summary that I just gave is um, I, I wouldn't want people to think that that there's these hard and fast boundaries, you know, Theravada Buddhists are like this and, and sure. Mahayana Buddhists are like that and mm -hmm. Tantric Buddhists are like that. Um, because actually in all of those settings, there's all kinds of borrowings and, 
uh, negotiations and also these ideas are quite contentious in certain settings and 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 so um you know these are very broad strokes that i just that i just mentioned you know sort of like macro level observations you know across many 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 centuries and across all of asia but then what's really interesting and i get into in the second half of the book is is all the sort of local variances and ways that all of this kind of plays out, you know, historically. So, um, so I just wanted to say that. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so, um, what do I make of it? Well, I, you, you, you and I may not be that far off your comment about Wim Hof. I don't know too much about him, but, um, um, I, I do, I do, um, well, maybe I'll say it like this. So, um, across, all of these Buddhist cultures and across, you know, all of the centuries that Buddhism has been around, um, you can see a number of different, um, maybe paradigms or worldviews or epistemologies that are informing, uh, the practice of health and healing. And so, um, very early on, in the earliest Buddhist text that we have, there's already uh, a tension there between the idea that that illness is caused by, or illness can be caused by natural uh, forces. In in the Pali, they're referred to as the four elements: earth, water, fire, and wind. Um, illness can be karmic; it can be caused by karma. Illness can be demonological, caused by um, aggressive, you know, spirits. Um, and those three ideas get, they, they continue through later forms of Buddhism, um, to the present. And so, you know, it's very common in many Asian cultures, uh, Buddhist cultures to view illness as being caused by, you know, all, all three of these. And then part of the work that's done in the healing process is to figure out which one is causing the illness. Um, in, in along the way, there's other paradigms that also have become incorporated into Buddhism. So everywhere that Buddhism has gone, it has adopted, uh, the local, uh, medical concepts when there, when there is a, uh, local tradition of medicine that is influential. So for example, Buddhism in China, um, Buddhist texts that are talk about healing and illness and so forth often refer to qi and um, yin yang and wuxing and all these other um, Chinese medical ideas and talk about acupuncture and Chinese herbs and so on and so forth. And that's that's also true in other places as well. Um, so that's another whole paradigm. And then they also, uh, as modernization took place, they also took on, um, you know, the scientific biomedical uh, paradigm as well. And so consequently, in Buddhist cultures around Asia today, um, this was actually really visible in the COVID pandemic. Uh, you had Buddhists responding to COVID from all of these levels, right? Um, you know, COVID as a uh, imbalance of the natural elements, COVID as a karmic issue, you know, why does one person die and the other person recovers or is asymptomatic when they both have the same COVID, right? Um, talking about why do some people get COVID, why other people are spared, right? All of this is, um, you know, based on karma. Um, you know, COVID was very much treated as a demon in many parts of Asia where the people use talismans and amulets and other kinds of rituals to keep the keep COVID away. Um, 
very much understood as a tra- in, through traditional medicine uh, factors, and then also understood through biomedical um, paradigms. And um, so, what do I make of it? Um, all of that is to say that you know, Buddhist medicine, Buddhist healing is this very multi-layered, multi-paradigmatic um, uh, model, and all of these ide- ideas, all of these. Um, paradigms are operating at the same time. And what I've found in the, the Buddhist responses to illness, um, is that they ordinarily are actually responding on multiple levels simultaneously, multiple layers simultaneously. Um, so that somebody comes down with COVID, they're going to get the biomedical treatment, the traditional medicine treatment and the talisman, you know, and a karmic cleansing kind of, uh, ritual. Um, and that there, that these layers are not necessarily seen as being in conflict with one another, but are seen as being working together, um, in order to provide, you know, the best kind of healing. Um, so, so when I look at that as somebody, you know, from, from the West, I have sort of a, um, I guess a strange, uh, fascination with, with religions from an early age. So I've maybe not your, your, your average Westerner, but, uh, um, I, I definitely, uh, think that Buddhism, Buddhist medicine is, um, that you, one way of interpreting what's going on is that this is a very sophisticated, uh, very skillful way of mobilizing the healing effects on multiple levels of the human being at the same time. So you've got physiological, you've got energetic, you've got mental, you've got emotional, you've got social, uh, levels, all, all being, uh, very skillfully managed through these multi- multi-layered, multifaceted, uh, therapeutic approaches. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And, uh, I appreciate that. I like the fact that you mentioned that they're, um, I don't want to say compiling, but they're placing together these different forms of medicine. So they're not making these outrageous claims that somehow doing a, a puja or a sadhana practice or putting on the amulet will solve the whole problem. Yeah. So I've, at this point I've interviewed literally hundreds of, um, Buddhists for uh, ethnographic projects that I've been doing, asking exactly that kind of question. Um, And I definitely have heard uh, from some people that, that, you know, all you have to do is pray to Guan Yin and nothing else. And, 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 you know, you can come to the temple and do this and not have to go to the, to the hospital. I've, I've definitely heard that before, but, but only from a very small number a very small um, number of people and really actually only through one or two, I would say, ultra conservative Buddhist organizations. Um, so the vast majority of Buddhists that I've that I've talked to about health and healing um, will make the point without me prompting them to even will make the point that, um, you know, that what they're advocating when they talk about rituals and prayers and other kinds of uh, practices is not in not to replace consultation with with doctors or um, you know whether it's traditional or biomedical doctors, uh, but actually sh- all should be done at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that is a the the by far the majority position within among the Buddhists that I've talked to is is this multi layered simultaneous approach to to mm-hmm. healing. Okay, good. That's that's uh, useful and and good to hear. And you made me think, actually, of my uh, my mother-in-law, 
who's a Italian Catholic, and she she's had her vaccines. You know, she goes to the doctor, but she also has various uh, saints around the house and in her car, which she'll uh, <laughs> which she'll touch and call on for a bit of extra healing. So, so that's right. her her amulet, so to speak. So, right, right. Yeah, I don't think Buddhism's, you know, unique or, or, or you, you know, I do see a lot of analogs between what I'm talking about in Buddhism and other cultures as well. Um, but, but I do think Buddhism is particularly um, eclectic or particularly open-minded when it comes to, you know, I mean, I guess a tradition that's whole premise is, you know, emptiness and, and the non-substantiality of things, right? My, you may, you may maybe expect within Buddhism that there would be a lot of, um, a lot more openness, uh, to sort of different, different paradigms of medicine. And, you know, it's all, if, if it's all conventional truth and it's all expedient means, right. Then, then, then we can just take on board, you know, many different medical models and use them all for the benefit of, of, of beings. Right. So I, I think, um, I think Buddhism is particularly open-minded, um, or has, ha- has a lot of room for, um, this kind of multi-paradigmatic sort of approach. Um, uh, but yeah, but I don't think Buddhism is, is, you know, somehow, um, you know, the, the only, the only religion that, that has room for this. Okay, great. So that was A Global History of Buddhism and Medicine. It's out on Columbia Press. And as mentioned earlier, it was published this year. So look, we've uh, not got a lot of time left, and I've got a couple of extra questions to throw at you uh, to round up. And I also want to talk about what you're doing next and mention your blog. So um, you said that you're not a philosopher. Okay, fine. Uh, Me neither. But I want to ask anyway, because you occupy this role in which you are, in a sense, eroding this division between East and West, right, which we know is a, it's a convention, it's a story, and it can be challenged quite easily. But are there any philosophers, East or West, okay, just to be lazy with that term, that inform your work at all? Uh, and if so, how? Yeah, um, um, you know, connections with philosophers, overt connections with philosophers, um, you know, in my training as a historian, in, you know, in our, our methodological training, um, you know, I, I was exposed to a lot of what I would call sort of the foundational thinkers um, of the contemporary academy. So people like Foucault and Bourdieu and, and, and others um, who we we read and we sort of like engaged with their work and understood how their work was informing our field, our discipline. Um, and then, um, so I definitely have places in my work where I'm drawing on models or, um, concepts that were introduced by, um, some of these foundational figures, um, in, in my, in my works. Um, I, but, I would say that that tends to be very muted in my own um, writing. I, I think I write in more of a sort of um, a mode of trying to speak about the historical events rather than trying to produce uh, theories or 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 um, hone hone theories uh, using those materials. And so, um, you know, that there there are scholars that are um, let's say trying to, trying to contribute to the theoretical, um, 
that are trying to contribute theoretical uh, models to the field. And I would say that that's not necessarily my strong point. I'm, I'm more um, borrowing theoretical models and, and, and deploying them in my work um, in order to uh, you know, in order to draw attention to things that I think are missing from the, the field as a whole. Um, so yeah, so I, I, you don't, you're not going to find a lot of overt engagement with philosophy in my, in my work. Our timing, I should say today is brilliant because we're coming right towards the end. And I want to finish up by just mentioning that you've got a, an interesting blog. It's, uh, com blog. And there are some interesting articles on there. I mean, if, in another conversation, I might have asked you a little bit more about pedagogy and picked up on some of these themes that have come up throughout our conversation today and the role of a, a teacher and, and how we teach the whole person. There are a couple of pieces which have names for articles which head off in that direction. Um, but it seems very clear, both from our conversation and visiting there, that you, you see teaching very much as a vocation. And uh, yeah, great. Me, me too. So that's that. We've mentioned the two books, but there's another new project about to emerge. Why don't you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to mention it. So um, this th this week, while we're so we're recording this on November seventh, and later this week, um, I'm going to launch a podcast. Uh, so it's a podcast on. Um, it, it, it's called Blue Barrel, as in the gemstone that is associated with the Medicine Buddha. Uh, and it's a podcast about Buddhism and Asian medicine and uh, embodied spirituality. So this is a, a podcast coming out um, on uh, wherever you get podcasts and you can see the, you can link to them through uh, my website, piercestoggero.com. And uh, we're also going to be picked up by the New Books Network, as I know you are as well, Matthew. And and um, uh, not all of our episodes will, will come out on NBN, but but um, some of them will. So hmm. um, it's a, it's a, um, a full year of interviews with uh, scholars and practitioners of Buddhist medicine of various different types. So we have people from, um, you know, Tibetan, Chinese, uh, Sri Lankan, Thai, uh, and, and other contexts talking about Buddhism and medicine in those different cultures, and both historically and also contemporary. Um, and yeah, so that that's uh, going to be once a month coming out um, over the next year. Yeah, thanks for allowing me to plug it. No worries. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, so Pierce, it's been good to talk and I'm glad uh, we managed to make this happen. I wish you all the best with your your projects and your work and you've been listening to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.